Well, good morning, Cornerstone. If you would, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our passage for this morning for the fourth and final week in a row is 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. And let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have this morning to hear from your word. Father, we thank you as well for the union that we enjoy with Christ. Um, This is a a concept, a thought that we've been celebrating here together um, uh, over the the hymns that have been sent out, the scripture passages as we've worshipped together at home. This is a tremendous thought to know that we are one with our Savior. It's on the basis of this thought that we um, can trust, that we have been forgiven of our sins. And this thought also reminds us that we are called to be holy, that we are to image Him, to represent Him. As we turn our attention to this morning's text, we pray that uh, you would help give us further insight into what this means, the the impact of this union that we have with Christ and how it's to be applied in the body. And we pray that you would help us to do this so that we as a people might glorify your name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the foundational doctrines of the Protestant Reformation is a doctrine known as the perspicuity of Scripture. And in case you're wondering, that term perspicuity uh, simply means clarity. Meaning the perspicuity of, of Scripture is simply a very unclear way of saying the clarity of Scripture. And this is one of the hallmarks of the Reformation, the belief that the Scripture is not only inspired, that it is not only authoritative and sufficient, but that it is also clear, meaning it's able to be read and understood. This is ultimately why we as Protestants don't turn to an authoritative interpreter of the text like a pope, or even at times to an authoritative body of interpreters such as a church council to interpret the scripture for us. It's because we don't think such a thing is necessary. Reason being the text is clear, it can be understood. It's a doctrine that sounds good in theory, but once you start to put it in practice, you begin to realize that it's not without its challenges. For example, if the scripture is clear, then how come Protestants can't seem to agree on what it says? That's perhaps one of the biggest arguments against the clarity of scripture. Opponents will point out that it can't be clear, because if it were clear, then you wouldn't see so much disagreement taking place over its meaning. This challenge isn't ultimately insurmountable. Inherent in Protestant doctrine is a belief in both the ignorance and even the the sinfulness of man, meaning one of the ways that we can answer this disagreement is by saying the problem isn't with the Scripture, it's with us. The Scripture is infallible and clear. The interpreter, however, is not. And just so you know, I really do think this is the answer to so many of the challenges we encounter when we interpret the text. The Scripture really is clear. The problem is that our thinking is not. Meaning, if we were not ignorant of so many things, if we did not have our sin and our idols clouding our judgment, then it wouldn't be too hard to understand. You look at Jesus, for instance, and He could and did interpret the Scripture without trouble, even when He was very young. Even before the Spirit came upon Him at His baptism, Luke tells us that as He interacted with Israel's best and brightest teachers, quote, all who heard Him were amazed at His understanding in his answers. This is, in a sense, a glimpse into what the unfallen mind is capable of 
as it interacts with the text. Even a child can understand it. Still, there are moments when the text really does seem rather hard to understand, and I don't just mean that it's hard doctrinally. Yes, there are some hard sayings that we sometimes encounter in the text, where although the text itself may seem plain, it's very difficult to reconcile with other passages of Scripture. You think of the reference that Paul makes to the baptism of the dead, for instance, a little bit later here in 1 Corinthians, and what makes that passage so hard to understand is how unlike it is with anything that we encounter anywhere else in the New Testament. But I don't just mean that the Scripture is hard to understand in that sense. No, I mean there are moments where it's just plain difficult to translate, like the grammar itself is a little hard to pinpoint. And that matters because the meaning of a sentence can change dramatically depending on its punctuation in grammar. It's kind of like the sentence, let's eat, Grandma. Uh, You keep the comma there between eat and Grandma, and you're having Grandma over for dinner. You remove it, and you're having Grandma for dinner. Let's eat, Grandma. Okay, Uh, It's no different with the biblical text. In fact, this is why it's a good idea for pastors to study Greek and Hebrew. It's because without the ability to actually see the grammar of the text, it's often hard to discern the meaning of a text. When this happens, the challenge that arises for the pastor is what to do with one of these difficult texts. Do you let the ambiguity just sit, meaning do you just say this text is ambiguous and you you leave it at that? Or do you pick the best option available and preach it? That's not really an easy choice to make. On the one hand, if God took the time to inspire the authors to write these texts, then you have to think that he wants us to know what's in them. And yet, on the other hand, if that's the case, then why didn't he make the passage clearer? On the one hand, you want to preach the whole counsel of God as a pastor, and yet, on the other, you don't want to go around preaching things as the Word of God that aren't the Word of God. Basically, you don't want to go around passing off opinion as fact. So what do you do? Just so you know, I wrestle over this a lot as a pastor. As I've explained over the past couple of months, I believe it's my job to be a steward of the Word of God, meaning I am to present to you no more and no less than what we find in God's Word. And while I think a lot of times we put the emphasis on the no less side, of that equation in our theological circles, meaning we're sensitive to the fact that there are men who will intentionally leave things out of God's Word in order to avoid offense. At the same time, we need to be equally sensitive that we not make the Word of God say more than what it has to say as well. If you recall, this is what Paul chastised the the Corinthians for uh, back in chapter 4. He urged them not to go beyond what is written. I tell you, that takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of discipline to make the text say all that it has to say and only what it has to say without going any further. It's very easy to read meaning into the text and then pass that off as fact. Now, the reason I say all of this is because a couple of weeks back we encountered one of these passages that are very difficult to interpret. It's right here in verses 3 through five. Paul responds to this news that there's this uh, man in the Corinthian church sleeping with his stepmother, and the Corinthians have done nothing about it. He responds to this news with absolute disgust, absolute horror, and he tells the Corinthians, remove this man from your church, 
saying, verses 3 through 5, For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the, of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I pointed out a couple of weeks ago that there are a couple of phrases that are difficult to place in this passage, but what I want to do this morning is to try to make some sense of these verses, not only because I think it will help us understand some of the questions that Paul has raised for us as we've worked through this text, but also because I think it will present us with some very interesting side implications as well. Meaning there are some ramifications to what Paul says here that extend beyond just the situation that he's trying to address in this passage. And these additional ramifications are, I think, very useful in helping us think through some other important matters in the church which we might otherwise overlook. The thing is, I have to warn you here up front, there's a sense in which what I'm about to tell you is really just my opinion of the text. And I want you to understand what I'm saying this. Hear this clearly. I'm not saying that what I'm about to tell you is merely my opinion, as if all that I'm about to say is is just simply my idea. Far from it, actually. This passage has been forcing me to reconsider some of my own uh, positions. Uh, These aren't my ideas in the slightest. These are ideas I'm finding in the text. And yet I want you to understand that my interpretation is still admittedly a little shaky. In other words, I'm not going to be dogmatic in what I'm about to say because I don't think that the text warrants that, but I do happen to think that this is what the text really says. And I I don't want to duck the Word of God. I don't want to neglect to proclaim to you what I really think is the entire counsel of God's Word. I just want you to understand, interpreters are flawed. I am most certainly flawed. So don't just take my word for it. Examine for yourselves what I'm about to say and see if it's true. Just as a heads up, this morning is, is probably going to have a little bit of a classroom feel. I'm just going to try to explain what the text means and then check off some of the implications as we go without a lot of frills. And that's because the purpose of this morning's passage is more to inform you regarding some key concepts that emerge from this text more than it is to convict or encourage you. Basically, there are some interesting ideas in this passage, and all I'm trying to do is demonstrate and explain these ideas to you more than I am trying to drive it into your heart. So if this feels a little bit clinical today, that's why. Let's begin first by reading the entire passage so we can explore this text within its context. The key verses, once again, are 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 through 5. But we're going to begin by reading the entirety of 1 Corinthians 5. Again, that's 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. 
Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The subject that we've been exploring over the past several weeks has been how we are to respond to sin in the body of Christ. All in all, I've said that we can summarize Paul's teaching in this passage into three points, three responses. The first response is more of an attitude, whereas the next two are actions which emerge from this attitude. The first two responses have to do more with our response to sin in the church, whereas the third response deals more with our response to sin in the world. The three responses are as follows. Number one, mourning, not arrogance. Number two, removal, not association. Number three, distinction, not isolation. First, we are to respond to sin in the body, not by accepting or even boasting in it, as if it somehow magnifies the grace of God to allow sin in our midst. Instead, we are to see it as a very, very serious issue and even mourn over its presence. Second, whenever we encounter someone in the body who is engaged in ongoing sin, and when they refuse to repent of this sin, we then act on this sorrow by evicting them from the body, not by maintaining fellowship with them. And then third and finally, we distinguish ourselves from the world and its sins without at the same time isolating ourselves from contact with unbelievers. Essentially, we have a mission to perform. Separation from sin doesn't mean isolation from the sinner. We need to engage them with the gospel. And of course, the key concept that really runs through these three points, the unifying thread that ties them all together is this notion of corporate holiness. The church has been set apart by God as holy, and the church is one entity, one body. Those two statements are what explain why Paul says the church should respond to sin in the way that we see right here. In fact, it even explains the seemingly contradictory nature of the second and third responses. In short, the thinking goes like this. Uh, because the church is holy and one, the Corinthians need to mourn over sin in their midst and even evict unrepentant members, since if they don't, God will hold the entire body accountable and even discipline the entire body on account of the one man's sin. Basically, God won't just view this as his sin, but their sin, and he'll treat them accordingly. However, they do not need to isolate themselves from the world and its sins, since because they are already distinct from the world, God will not hold them accountable for their sins. 
Basically, they are not one with the world in the same way that they're one with their fellow believers. To some degree, I think you could even say that God has not set the world apart as holy in the same way that he set the church apart as holy. And so because the church does not share this calling with the world in the same way that they do with those who claim the name of Christ, God will not view the world and its sins as you won't attribute that to the church as kind of a package deal meaning the church is free to interact with the world without any fear of being disciplined for their sins. There are a number of questions that arise out of this concept. For example, at the end of this passage, Paul summarizes the larger implication of this text when he says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. That's the basic point of this passage. The church is to judge sin inside the church, not outside of it. This is the proper application of grace in the body of Christ. Grace doesn't mean we excuse the sins of those inside the church while judgmentally condemning those outside of it. If anything, it means the exact opposite. We actually hold to a higher standard of conduct for those inside the church than we do for those outside of it. We're actually less tolerant of sin inside the body than we are for sin outside the body. One of the questions that emerges from this concept, though, is, who is my brother? In verses 9 through 11, we see that we're not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, who is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunker or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Well, what does it mean to bear the name brother? Does that include the family member who was baptized at five but doesn't attend church anymore? Does it include those who attend apostate or pseudo-Christian churches? Or what about Christians who attend a different church? Are they my brother? Even further, what does Paul mean by this phrase, not even to eat with such a one? I explained last week that this probably includes more than just mere eating, and that this includes whatever might communicate fellowship or partnership. So supposing we identify someone as our brother, or rather, suppose they think of themselves as our brother, and they're engaged in a known unrepentant sin, to what extent do we need to go to break fellowship with them? What communicates this notion of fellowship in our day and age. For example, say I have a family member who marries into a Catholic family, and so in the process they convert to Catholicism. When Thanksgiving rolls around, and they're invited, what do I do? Do I just skip Thanksgiving? Is that what Paul's commanding in this passage? And if I ignore what Paul is saying here, am I going to be disciplined for it? Hopefully you can see these are very pertinent issues, are they not? These are the types of questions that I know many Christians wrestle with instinctively. They know that they're supposed to hold themselves apart in some way, that at some point it becomes necessary to even break fellowship with certain individuals as a means of protest against their sin. They just don't know when or even how. So what's the answer to this question? As I mentioned last week, this isn't something we can cover in just one week. In fact, this is an issue that Paul is going to continue to explore from various angles over the next several chapters of 1 Corinthians. But he gives us a really good start here in chapter 5. 
And I think we discover one especially critical component to this answer, or answer to this question, uh, right here in verses 3 to 5 in particular. We covered this section of the passage two weeks ago. And if you recall, I said that there are a couple of different phrases in this text that are difficult to translate. The first is this phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus. There is a legitimate case to be made that this phrase is actually meant to describe the authority of Paul's judgment, that he's pronouncing his judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It could also refer to the high-handedness of this man's sin. Basically, the end of verse 3 could read, the one who did such a thing in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning it's a part of his boasting. He's not just living with his stepmother, but he's doing so in the name of Christ. Or this phrase could be translated in the way the ESV uses it here as a reference to the Christian assembly. They are assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus. The second phrase is a bit difficult to translate. Is this phrase at the end of verse 4, with the power of our Lord Jesus. That phrase could be translated as, through the power of our Lord Jesus, which would indicate either that Jesus' power is necessary to turn this man over to Satan, or even that Paul's presence with them is mediated through the power of the Lord Jesus. It could also be translated simply as, with the power of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, which tends to indicate that Jesus' power accompanies Paul's presence, almost as if his presence, in a sense, Paul's presence, mediates this power. Or, this phrase could even be translated as, along with the power of the Lord Jesus, which tends to indicate less that Paul's presence mediates Christ's power, and more that the Lord's power is present with both the Corinthians and Paul. I also mentioned that regardless of how these phrases are translated, what is apparent is that Paul perceives an ability to exercise his apostolic authority in this passage from a distance, as if present. And that the reason he is able to do this is because although he is absent, he still envisions a very real spiritual presence with the Corinthians the next time they assemble. I said further that when we ask how is this kind of presence possible, we can probably conclude from what we discover elsewhere in Paul's writings that it's made possible through the spiritual union that Christians enjoy with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Essentially, when the Christian believes, they are indwelt by the one Spirit of God who indwells every believer. And what this means is that, is that there's a sense in which even when we are apart, we are still united together in one spirit, and it's on the basis of this union that Paul anticipates that his spirit will be present with the Corinthians the next time they assemble. This is ultimately how he can exercise his authority as if present, even though physically he's still very far away. So then, what's the right interpretation of this text? And how does it add to our understanding of this topic? Well, I think the answer is that this phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, is describing the Corinthians' assembly. They are assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
and I think this phrase, with or through the power of the Lord Jesus, is best understood in the third sense I described. It's as along with the power of the Lord Jesus. And I say this for several reasons. First, look at this phrase, of the Lord Jesus. Two times Paul repeats this phrase in verse 4. And in each instance, it's attached to what's called a prepositional phrase with a slightly different nuance. Um, There is, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and with or through the power of the Lord Jesus. You guys see that? Personally, I think it makes the most sense to think that these are parallel statements intended to make a connection between two related ideas. Those two ideas being the Corinthians assembly and the presence of Paul's spirit. Again, do you see this? It's as if Paul is using the one phrase to help explain the other. The Corinthians assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when this happens, Paul's spirit is present with or through the power of the Lord Jesus. Second, I think this translation best accounts for the problems that arise in what Paul is presenting here. Basically, not only is it incredibly unlikely that a man would commit such a sin in the name of the Lord Jesus, but in addition to that, Paul's apostolic authority isn't really what's in question here. Essentially, he doesn't doesn't need to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus to express the authority on which he acts in this passage. That part, I think, is more or less assumed. What's less clear is how Paul can be present with them even while he's absent. The answer is, he'll be present along with the power of the Lord Jesus when they are next assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Essentially, this phrase is explaining how he can act on this authority while away. Third, I think this translation makes the most sense contextually. Again, the the unifying theme in this passage is this idea of corporate holiness. The reason why the Corinthians need to separate themselves from this man is because they are one with him. His sin becomes their sin when they choose to do nothing about it. So it makes sense in this context for Paul to be talking about the basis for this kind of a union. When they assemble, they assemble in the name of the Lord. And as they assemble in the name of the Lord, the power of the Lord Jesus is present with them. I tell you, this would make a tremendous amount of sense as to why the Lord would discipline them for this sin and not those on the outside, the sins of those on the outside. The reason is because the Lord is uniquely present among them and perhaps even most especially when they assemble. In other words, just as God disciplined Israel in the Old Testament precisely because he dwelled among them and was offended by their sin and would not become partners with it, so too does the Lord Jesus dwell among his people and refuse to tolerate sin in their midst. This then takes me to the fourth and fifth reasons why I take this interpretation, which is found in the broader context of the scripture. Fourth, when I think of what's taking place here, and I think of this phrase, in the name of the Lord Lord Jesus, I'm immediately taken to Matthew 18, where after describing the process of church discipline, Jesus tells the disciples, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, 
it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. There Jesus is promising to superintend the church discipline process, to even guide the church in its decisions, and this is a promise predicated on a kind of presence that Jesus enjoys among them when they gather in his name. I have a really hard time thinking that that's simply a coincidence. I can't think that Paul wasn't aware of the connotations of this terminology as he's writing on the subject of church discipline. It would seem that he would have to be aware of that saying by Jesus and that he's bringing it to bear on, on this specific situation. Fifth and finally, I mentioned that there seems to be this allusion to the Lord's table in verses 6 to 8 a couple weeks back. I said that Paul is talking of the Passover feast, but I said that for Paul to make this reference while drawing this connection between the bread of that celebration and the church, that it's likely the Lord's table is what's inspiring that connection for Paul. After all, later in this same book, he'll say with reference to the table, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So clearly he sees the bread of the table as representative of the union that we all enjoy with Christ. Well, what I think is interesting is that the subject here, once again, is discipline. And we find one other instance of divine discipline occurring in this letter. And wouldn't you know it, it occurs around the Lord's table. The Corinthians are coming together around the table in a way that undermines the meaning of the table. Some are eating before others around this table. Others are getting drunk. All of which, by the way, indicates it's more than just the table they're celebrating, right? This is an actual meal that they're having together around the table. But they're doing it in a way that completely undermines the the meaning and significance of this meal. And as Paul hears this, he's appalled. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Does that language sound at all familiar? He's talking about judging ourselves truly. He says that when we do this, we will not be judged by the Lord. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. There's this idea of distinction from the world and discipline from the Lord, all of which seem to be elements at play back here in 1 Corinthians 5. So, do you know, want to know what I think Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians 5? Again, I'll be the very first to tell you, I'm probably reading a little bit between the lines here when I say this, but at the same time, I don't think this is a stretch in the slightest. I think what Paul is saying, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, 
He's talking about the next time that they're gathered around the Lord's table. This is what it means to assemble in the name of the Lord. Whenever we gather around the Lord's table, we are quite obviously assembling in the name of the Lord. We are even participating in the body and blood of the Lord. It's an act that symbolizes our identification with Jesus Christ. I mean, you stop and think about it, and this is even the one act of worship that is entirely unique in the Christian worship service. And I don't just mean that in the sense that this is something only Christians do, meaning it's something that Muslims and Jews and Buddhists do not do. No, I mean even more than this, it's something that I cannot, or at least something I should not do on my own. I can read scripture at home, I can listen to sermons at home, and I can pray and I can sing hymns at home. What I cannot do is observe the Lord's table at home. Because the Lord's table represents the union that I enjoy with my brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not something I can do on my own. I may eat bread and drink wine at home, but it's not the Lord's table that I'm observing when I do this, unless it's something I'm doing with my brothers and sisters in Christ, since the Lord's table represents that. So I think this is what Paul is saying here. I think when he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord, he's talking about the next time that they're gathered around the Lord's table. And he's saying that when this happens, he will be spiritually present with them along with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, just so you know, I haven't quite exactly landed on what Paul means by this statement. In the past, as I've taught on the Lord's table, I've held to a view known as the memorial view of the Lord's table. This was a view originally taught by a reformer uh, by the name of Ulrich Zwingli. And as the name implies, it treats the Lord's table strictly as a memorial that serves to recall to the Christian's mind the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, For lack of a better term, it sees the Lord's table as more or less instructive. It would be similar to me saying at the end of the service, and now remember, everyone, uh, Christ died for you. Obviously, it has a greater effect than that, since as we hold and consume the elements, it presents this reality in an eminently more tangible form, but still its function is mostly to remind the Christian of Christ's sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. The memorial view takes that statement pretty literally. It says that Jesus instituted this meal to minister to the church by presenting us with a constant reminder of his sacrifice on our behalf. There's another view held by the Reformers, which was originally advocated by John Calvin, known as the spiritual presence view. Under this view, the Lord's table is more than a simple reminder of the reality is entailed in the gospel. It is instead a very real kind of fellowship with the Lord himself as he communes with his church spiritually. In other words, this view rejects the the Catholic doctrine known as transubstantiation, which says that the elements are mystically transformed into the actual body and blood of the Lord during communion. It rejects as well the Lutheran doctrine known as consubstantiation, which says that the body and blood of Christ coexist within the elements of the Lord's table without the elements themselves being transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Instead, it says that when we eat the elements by faith, Christ actually communes with us spiritually through the bond we share in the Holy Spirit. To put it another another way, the memorial view tends to say that nothing really special 
happens around the Lord's table. The fellowship we enjoy with Christ is no greater or no less than what we enjoy every other moment of every other day of the week because it's simply a remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. The spiritual presence view says otherwise. It says that there is a special kind of fellowship we enjoy with Christ around the Lord's table that actually doesn't occur at any other moment during the week. Traditionally, I've rejected the spiritual presence view, partly because I feel it's a bit sacramental, meaning it seems like it's saying the table conveys grace to the believer. I've rejected it partly because it's hard to understand just what it's saying, just what this spiritual presence is. In short, every time I read on it, it it seems a little bit vague. I still have trouble grasping just what this spiritual presence is and how it's different from the fellowship we enjoy with Christ any other day of the week. But mostly I've rejected it because I hadn't seen any actual scripture to back it up. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. That seems fairly straightforward and simple. I've had trouble seeing where this notion of spiritual presence comes from. In my eyes, I've always seen it more as a failure of some reformers to fully reform their faith. Basically, I thought they had trouble letting their Roman Catholicism go. And so while they could deny the literal transformation of the elements around the table, it was still just too big of a jump for them to say that there's no special presence of Christ at the table whatsoever. And I didn't have a problem with that. I'm just thinking, you know, this is, it's not in the text. This is just something that's there because the reformers are having a hard time uh, fully reforming. And then I hit 1 Corinthians 5. And what I can't get past in this passage is that Paul somehow envisions himself as spiritually present with the Corinthians when they assemble. As I do the math on that, and I try to figure out how that works, the only way I can see it is if this is a presence that occurs through the union we share in the one Holy Spirit, a union that we share not only with one another, but with Jesus Christ himself. Meaning, as Paul seems to imply here, uh, that when they assemble, it won't just be Paul who is spiritually present with the Corinthians, but the Lord himself, his spirit will be present along with the power of the Lord Jesus. And again, I ask myself, but why does this seem to be uniquely the case when they assemble? I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into this passage to assume that, but it certainly seems like this is a presence that is uniquely expressed when they assemble. Maybe it's not. Maybe Paul's spirit is always present with them. There's nothing in the passage that negates that possibility, but that certainly doesn't seem to be what Paul is implying. It seems rather that he will be uniquely present with them when they assemble again. And when I ask myself why, why would this kind of presence only function in this way when they assemble? I can only come up with one answer, and that's the Lord's table. It seems that Paul is implying that when we gather around the table, not only do we experience a unique expression of our union with Christ, such that Christ is present with us spiritually at the table, but to some degree even our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, really from across the globe, perhaps you could even say from across time, that they are gathered with us spiritually as well through the union that we enjoy in Christ by the Spirit. 
Now you take a step back here for a minute. And if this is true, then it makes sense why Paul is saying, separate yourself from this man, because if you don't, then God will hold you accountable for his sin. It's because every time the church allows this man to come to the table and tear from the bread with them, signifying that he too is a part of this body, they not only make themselves a partner to his sin, but they do so with the Lord Jesus in their midst. In other words, what causes discipline to fall upon the church is not merely the fact that this man is engaged with his sin. It's that by continuing to come to the table with his sin, this man is wantonly presenting his sin before the Lord. He's flaunting it. And he's flaunting it with the Corinthians' participation and support. But, I mean, really, whether the Lord Jesus is is actually spiritually present in some unique fashion or not, I think what you can say at the very least is that the Lord's table is a unique expression of our union with Christ. As Paul says in chapter 10, it is participation in the body and blood of Christ. At the Lord's table, we uniquely identify with Christ by symbolically drinking His blood and eating His body. So, regardless of whether or not the idea of spiritual presence is legit, I think what we can still say definitively, we can still see why Paul would say in chapter 11 that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. It's like I said at the end of last week's message, for this people in this culture, right, a meal was more than just a meal. It was an act of fellowship, of of partnership even. And so when they gather around the table with this man, they don't just make themselves a party to this man's sin, they make Jesus a party to it. And while the church may not be content, or while the church may be content to remain silent under those circumstances, you can bet that Jesus will not be. Jesus isn't going to simply stand around and become complicit in this man's sin. No, he's going to do something about it. And chiefly, he's going to express his displeasure with this sin by disciplining the church until they either call this man to repentance or separate. And I think that's what Paul is expressing in this passage. Again, I know I'm reading between the lines a little bit here quite clearly. Paul never explicitly references the Lord's table at any part in this passage. But then again, if this is such a basic part of his understanding that it's more or less assumed, then he wouldn't need to. The Corinthians would already know what he's talking about. And as I set this passage against what Paul says elsewhere in this same letter, I tend to think there's some strong support to the idea that that's what's happening here. He's interacting with a fairly common understanding of the Lord's table. And he's informing the Corinthians of the problems with their response to this man's sin based on that understanding. He's telling them, you're overlooking the fact that by refusing to deal with this sin, you're becoming partners with this man. And that's a problem because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If this is all true, if this is really what's running in the background as Paul writes this passage, then how ought this affect the way that we function as a church? Well, first I can tell you that it should probably affect the way we understand the Lord's table. 
For example, I can tell you that personally, I am less and less convinced based off of this passage that it's acceptable for churches to observe the Lord's table on only a periodic basis. Of course, uh, we here at Cornerstone started observing the Lord's table on a weekly basis around four years ago. And at the time, my attitude was really, why wouldn't we want to celebrate the Lord's table every week? It just didn't make sense why, given everything the Lord's table represents, why we would want to observe this table less. I didn't think it wrong to observe the table only periodically. I just didn't see why you would want to. Now, uh, the more I reflect on the meaning of this table, it seems less like an option and more like an obligation. Do you understand? When we gather around the table, we assemble in the name of the Lord. Not only is this an act that, that makes the worship service uniquely Christian, but it uniquely represents our union together in Christ, and perhaps even at a spiritual level. Meaning, you can almost argue that if the church doesn't celebrate the table, then they haven't truly assembled. Because the one who binds them all together in one, the one who forms the basis of their relationships together, the one who is even the point of the worship service, there's a sense in which he's not there. He's not present. I mean, think about that for a minute. Think about having a worship service and not inviting Jesus. That is, in a sense, what a church does when it fails to celebrate the Lord's table. And most especially, if we're saying this notion of spiritual presence is legit. So I think this is one implication that could emerge from this passage. It reveals to us really the importance and the significance of the Lord's table. If I understand this issue rightly, then it also impacts a very relevant topic that we've been wrestling with over the past several weeks. Uh, That issue being, is it okay to celebrate the Lord's table virtually? Again, I'm, I'm still thinking this one through, but it would seem that if there's a kind of union taking place around this table such that Paul can say that he is spiritually present with the Corinthians when they assemble, even though he's in Ephesus. And I have a hard time seeing how it would undermine the meaning of the table if the church participated in the meal virtually. Now, maybe you could argue that there still needs to be some kind of physical assembly, but supposing we were having a service like what we've been having over the past several weeks where most of the church is gathered physically while some are watching from home, would it be wrong for those at home to participate with us? I don't think so. At, at least not in the sense um, of you know whether it would be, uh, uh, I guess, uh, at least it would be okay in the sense that they're still present with us spiritually when this happens. Now, I think you could probably still say that they shouldn't do it, because of what I'm about to say in my next point, but at least regarding the question of, is it a true assembly when we don't assemble physically? I think Paul answers this question, yes, very much so. It is still a true assembly. What this passage shows us is that our assembly is more than just physical. And what makes it so is the Lord's table. The table represents the spiritual union we enjoy in Christ. Third, and perhaps most significantly, I think what this passage shows us is that a closed Lord's table isn't just an option. 
If anything, it's probably necessary. I tell you, I never thought I would say this. I can still remember the first time I learned that there were churches that practiced a closed Lord's table, meaning a table in which only church members are permitted uh, to eat and drink. And I thought the idea was absolutely ludicrous. Who do they think they are? I thought to myself, don't they realize that as Protestants we've rejected the notion of a priesthood? So who do they think they are to restrict my access to the ordinances? But I can tell you now I understand it's not about restricting access to the ordinances or restricting access to Christ. It's about protecting the church from the consequences of other people's sins. Do you understand? You should be concerned about who you're eating the table with. Because as you eat of the table with them, you're claiming a kind of partnership with them. You're saying that you're in fellowship with them. And this means that when they come to this table with known unrepentant sin, then you're becoming partners with them in their sin. Let me explain what I mean by this. What I mean is that after studying this passage, if I saw another person in this congregation approaching the table, the table who I knew was engaged in unrepentant sin, I would now elect to not participate in the table that week rather than to become partners in their sins with them. And of course, you can only imagine the ramifications this thought has for issues, issues like local church membership and church discipline. After all, if the celebration of this meal is what really makes this event a Christian assembly, then I don't have the option of not observing the table. And if I don't have the option of not observing the table, then it means that when I know of a fellow church member who's engaged in unrepentant sin, I can't not address it. There's suddenly a greater urgency to address sin in the body because that sin affects my communion, our communion with the Lord. And I would have you note that that seems to be Paul's intended effect here, is it not? This seems to be part of the design of the Lord's table. It consistently encourages us to put away our sin. Beyond the application of the Lord's table, there are a couple of other key applications that we can draw from this text as well. Again, last week at the end of the message, uh, or at the end of the passage, Paul tells us that we are to disassociate ourselves from those who bear the name brother and, quote, not even to eat with such a one. Uh, this raises all kinds of questions about what it means to be called a brother. Basically, who is my brother? Further, what does it mean to not even eat with such a one? How far does that extend? Again, say, for example, I have a family member, again, who, who marries into a Catholic family, and so in the process, they convert to Catholicism. Does that mean when Thanksgiving rolls around that I shouldn't go? Um, you know, if they're, if they're invited, is that what Paul's commanding in this text? Uh, to this question, I would make two observations. First, I would have you observe that the discipline that Paul is talking about here is a corporate discipline that's being enacted upon the entire church for their corporate participation in another's sins. And then second, I would have you observe that the way they're participating in this person's sins is through their corporate fellowship around the Lord's table. This is the reason why they're being disciplined as a body. It's because as a body, they're expressing their fellowship with this individual around the Lord's table, specifically 
which is itself a very unique expression of the fellowship that we enjoy with Christ. In other words, going back to this question about thanksgiving, uh, I don't think I can answer just yet whether or not you should attend Thanksgiving in that scenario, just based off of what we've studied so far in 1 Corinthians. There are other factors that come into play to answering that question that Paul hasn't addressed just yet. He'll get there, but we haven't covered all the considerations we need to address in order to answer that question just yet. But as it relates to the subject of discipline, essentially, will God discipline you for attending Thanksgiving under that scenario? I think the answer is very clearly no. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you should still go. There could be other reasons for not attending other than concerns you might be disciplined for it. Again, we'll get to those reasons eventually, but as far as the matter of discipline goes, I think we can resolve that neither you nor the church would be disciplined for attending in that scenario. Reasons being, A, the church is is, uh, not participating in that choice with you. Right? It's not a corporate act, and so the church is definitely safe. And then B, you are not uniquely expressing the fellowship that you enjoy with Christ at Thanksgiving in the same way that the church does around the Lord's table. You see, this is part of the benefit of a proper understanding of the Lord's table. It distinguishes between uh, the church uh, when the church is assembling in the name of Christ and when it isn't. So like when I go grab coffee with a, the, the Jehovah's Witness that lives next door and talk scripture together, I don't have to worry that I'm going to be disciplined for being in fellowship with them. Reason being, there's no expression of our fellowship together since that sort of expression takes place around the Lord's table. In fact, let me take this just a step further. You know how I said last week, that this prohibition to, quote, not even eat with such a one extends beyond the Lord's table? Well, the more I've reflected on this passage, the less I think that's actually the case. Remember, for this people, a meal was more than just a meal. It was an expression of friendship and even partnership. And it was for this very same reason that when they observed the Lord's table, they didn't just consume the elements, they actually ate a meal with it. Again, we see this in 1 Corinthians 11. Some are eating before the rest, some are getting drunk. And as Paul observes this, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And not because all of this was in addition to the Lord's table, but, quote, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. It was the way they consumed the meal that undermined its meaning. Listen, I'll tell you what I think Paul is saying here. I think Paul understands this church, this Corinthian church, well enough that the way they'll respond to what he's telling them, he anticipates that the way they'll respond to what he's telling them is to say, well, okay, so we won't have this man participate in the table, but we'll still invite him to the meal. Again, they are that lax in their attitude towards sin. And Paul is telling them, no, you don't even eat with him. He's completely cut off from any celebration of this event whatsoever. In other words, we know from chapter 14 that Paul anticipates that unbelievers would come and visit the Christian worship service. We know that from 1 Corinthians 14. What he wants to make clear is that the table is closed. 
And so once a person is removed from this table, the church is not to in any way communicate their ongoing fellowship with this individual. Or to put it another way, he's telling them to do just exactly what many churches do when they discipline one of the members. He's telling them to tell that person, you don't get to come here anymore. You can't come and participate in our worship with us. Again, reason being, because for this person to continue to come and participate in really any element of the worship service with them, with the church, not just the table, but the entire event which the table sanctifies, this assembly in the name of the Lord, for them to come and participate with the church in this is to communicate a kind of fellowship with them. That same fellowship is not communicated to the unbeliever who comes and attends the service because in that instance, everyone is on the same page that that person is not a part of the covenant community. But for someone who claims the title brother to come and to participate in any part of the event as a brother, that's different. To allow that person to participate under those circumstances while they're engaged in known unrepentant sin is to claim a kind of fellowship with them and to participate in their sins with them. And in that scenario, the church needs to watch out. God will correct them for that person's sins. Now, I know what we've covered today doesn't answer all of our questions, uh, but I think it's a good start. And if you don't agree with me, that's okay. It's like I said at the beginning of today's message, I'm not going to be dogmatic on these points. Uh, To be completely honest, I'm not entirely certain that I've completely landed on these issues myself. I think there's certainly some more study I need to do before I can really say that these are fully formed convictions. But, if I'm going to stand up here and exposit the text and tell you this is what the passage says, then I have to tell you, at least for right now, this is what I think the passage says. A few weeks ago I said that Paul would challenge us to reconsider some of our positions during the course of this letter. I can tell you, I know he's already certainly doing that for me. The question that we have to ask ourselves as we encounter these challenges is, will we listen? I think you know I'm doing the best I can to listen, and I hope you will as well. Let's pray.